abortion, you, as Christians, we all have to make sure that we are showing up to the conversation not to win anything and not to prove anything, but to show up with empathy and to show up with a lot of grace and making sure that um, the context that we are speaking within is appropriate. So a lot of times, personally, when I'm talking online about this issue or when I'm speaking at a conference, like I'm just very well aware of not only who am I talking to, but who else is in the room. So, you know, there's lots of um, pro-life media and content out there, and they use uh, lots of different language that I, I don't particularly use. Um, and I talk about that quite often, about why I use different language than most of probably the pro-life movement. Because we all know that if we're really being honest, our church family has a big history with abortion too. And that our own family is dealing with women who are sitting in our pews that are having abortions. And so that's a very humbling thing to think about and to consider when we want to yell at the culture for being so lost, and yet our own family, our own house is, is out of order in this regard as well. And so um, we also want to make sure that as easy as these conversations get into the gutter and they get into partisan politics, as Christians we're supposed to rise above that partisan narrative and we're going to revisit here in just a minute just why that's so ineffective and, and why partisan narratives really don't move us forward in grace and compassion. But um, it's just I want us to, to know kind of what our family looks like in this situation. If you could show me slide nine. I'm going to go a little bit out of order, so hopefully that doesn't throw you. But this is for our family in-house, if we're just taking the, you know, the log out of our eye here. Seven out of 10 women identify as Christians who have had abortions. Four out of 10 said they were attending a church at the time. This is like, I, I have never had an abortion. All, all of my college roommates, I'm pretty sure did. <laughs> um, and I went to a secular university, and so I was around a lot of girlfriends who were constantly having sex, constantly you know, like off for a couple days, or can you just drop me off at Planned Parenthood, whatever. So like when I see these stats of my friends versus my Christian friends, this is so grievesome to me because the church is supposed to be different. And these are the reasons why our family members say that they have and they run to abortion because the church is not the place that they're running to. Two-thirds of those surveyed said church members judge single women who are pregnant. A majority of them that were surveyed says that the church oversimplifies these really complicated decisions. Fewer of half said that um, the church is unprepared to help with decisions about unwanted pregnancies and that the church doesn't give accurate advice about pregnancy options. And I think the saddest one up here, beside the loss of life, is that three-fourths of women say their local church had no influence on their decision. So like, what does that tell you when we show up to this abortion conversation in the great big world that wants to pull it one way or the other? It's just a matter of settling ourselves in a posture of humility and not of judgment, and know that probably the person that you are talking to has either had an abortion or knows someone very close to them that has. 
And I think all of us who are mothers know that a pregnancy, no matter how that pregnancy ends, changes you. You're forever changed by a pregnancy, no matter how it ends. And that's important to just realize that this is, this is not something to fight over. This is something, something to love people through. And so I think that's um, important. I think one of the things we have to just always keep in mind too is just in this conversation, you can always hear a really good argument over here and you're like, oh, yeah, I guess maybe that is a good point. Or, you know, I feel like a lot of really traditional kind of pro-lifers um, have been very like staunch and kind of black and white. And then you know, when Roe was overturned, it was just like a flood of content and a flood of, well, what about this situation? What about this situation? What about? And at the end of the day, the bottom line is, is when there's this rally cry for women's rights, the question we always have to return to and ask ourselves is, the right to do what? What, what, is, what are you fighting to do? And let, let's carry that out. Well, I want women's rights. And my question would be, well, which woman? Is it the woman in the womb or out of the womb? Because it's, we're fighting, they're fighting for the right to intentionally end a life. We're not talking about, you know, fetal demise. We're not talking about miscarriage management. We're going to get to that kind of thing if we have time to get into that. What we're talking about is the vast majority of abortions in this country are elective. They're for reasons that are unspecified. They're usually financial, relational, um, educational decisions that they're making. They're has for a healthy, viable pregnancy. And so when we know that, we'll see those stats up here too. We just have to think, go back to what are people fighting for the right to do? They're fighting to, for the right to intentionally take the life of an innocent child. And that's always what we have to keep in mind. We'll get into exceptions and all these things, but that's always just like, okay, this is a really crazy situation. Let's, we can enter into that for sure, but let's just always be revisiting what are we asking for the right to do? That's really good. Um, okay, so if we're, if we're not approaching it from a political mm -hmm. perspective, um, what, okay, let's reframe it from a biblical perspective. Right. Like, what, what does the Bible have to say? Yeah. So let's go to that slide that says, so this is, this is not all of them. This is but your this homework. Is, <laughs> everyone look all of these up. This is not all of them, but these are either very specific scripture references that talk about God's design in the womb, or they're a story or something that references life that is preborn. But the next slide is what the ones that are the most common for us. I don't know why there's a big E. Oh, because scripture just decided to kind of flip over down there. But we're all super familiar with Genesis 127, right? So if the partisan narratives divide us and they actually really don't accomplish much and they just inflame people, as Christians, we're supposed to kind of rise above those narratives anyway. So just revisiting what we're grounded in and, how, and why we believe what we believe. And that is, you know, Genesis 127, every, every person was created in the image of God, unique likeness of Jesus knit together in their mother's room. We always talk about that in Psalm 139. Um, obviously, you can see in Exodus, you know, you shall not murder, you shall not kill innocent people, and, and all of those things. These are kind of, this is language, this is from Bible translations. I don't tend to use that kind of language when I'm talking broadly on social. Um, yes, you could argue, and, and people do, that that is, uh, and I don't even like to say it on the stage, the, the killing, the murder of a child. 
I feel like when you're talking with a broader group of people and there's an audience of people, sometimes that language is really unhelpful based off of how painful abortion is. So just because it's true doesn't mean it needs to be said in that way. A lot of times when you see that language, I have a, actually, I mean, this is something I have to admit, I have a really hard time sharing pro-life content on social. I have a hard time sharing pro-life content in general because a lot of times I feel like the content is super insensitive and, it, and it's, it doesn't take into account how painful it is to just read something so flippant like that. It doesn't mean that that terminology isn't true. But as Christians, is that, is that drawing people in or is that pushing people away? Is that casting more shame or is that creating a conversation? to have with somebody, right? Okay, so speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Obviously, preborn children do not have a voice. Speak up for the rights who are poor. So then, I mean, obviously, we talk about this all the time, and that you were formed, you were purposed, you were fearfully and wonderfully made. So these are the things that we believe as Christians. Like, we know that God, your pregnancy is not an accident. You getting pregnant through a one-night stand might have been your accident. But the life that's now growing inside of you is not accidental. Every life is intentioned. You ask a woman who cannot have a baby. You ask a, ba a woman who is really struggling. I've, I went through the, the whole IVF and the whole thing process. Like, you are praying to God for the life of a baby in your body. So it's, we know who's the creator of life. And that when he does create a life, that it is unique and it's made in his likeness, and it has value and purpose, no matter what that life ends up being. And that's what scripture tells us. Um, the next thing is, okay, so beautiful thing about scripture, the beautiful thing about our faith, one of them, is that it marries so well with science. So we know, you know, as Christians, all right, we have this biblical approach, and this is what we believe, and this is what we're convicted by. But we also have the joy of looking to science. So the next slide is, you know, science, the study of embryology is this fascinating, if you're a nurse or a doctor in this room, you know embryology is just this fascinating uh, science about what happens with the life in the womb. And due to ultrasound technology, we have images, we can see what's going on inside of a mother's body. And these are the things, these are just kind of the big pullouts, right? So science, like every science journal <laughs> will tell you that conception starts at life, the egg and the sperm. Immediately, a new set of DNA is created, and that is a unique human being. It's not something else. It's not going to grow into anything else. If you give it time and it develops, it's growing into a human being, right? It's not this tissue, because if it was a tissue, we wouldn't have to do all of the things that you have to do through an abortion procedure to end the growth of that um, life. Anyways, so these are the pullouts, right? So science backs even just our scripture, right? Week six, heartbeat can be detected. Basic structure of nervous, central nervous system, the brain, the spine. Week seven, the baby's making its own blood. Week eight, can respond to touch by reflex, taste buds and tooth buds form. And I mean, they say that the earliest known um, uh, pain, feeling of pain, is week 1920. But when you look back and see when the central nervous system is back at week six, it's just so interesting to me. It's like, okay, so the nervous system is developing already at week six. And I just am waiting for the day that science will then be like, yeah, and I think they actually are pain capable way back then. <laughs> you know, so it just would make sense. So these are the things that reinforce 
what we believe convictionally, scripturally, these are the things we know scientifically about what's happening in the womb. That's so amazing. Um, okay, so, so I like that you included all of that. And but the the terminology gets really confusing, like the yeah. all of the different terms that people are using to debate mm -hmm. online. It's just kind of exhausting. So can you just like kind of ground us in some terminology first before we start talking? Yeah. So I mean, again, you were having all the disclaimers. I'm not a doctor. Some of you are nurses or doctors in this room, so you could probably come up and do this part, um, which is why I have a slide. Um, but, and I'm also, um, I'm not a legislature either. So like I don't create legislation, I, I pay attention to what's happening on legislation. And a lot of times when something gets passed and the terminology I don't understand, I'm asking my friends who are, who are in that business, who are elected officials or who are good at crafting legislation, what is this and what does it mean and what are the applications of that? So a lot of the information I'm telling you is just from my pro-life OBGYN friends or from science journals or from legislators that I know. But anyways, the terminology. So a lot of times people are like, right now, especially after Roe has been overturned, they're throwing out, well, women aren't gonna have miscarriage management and miscarriages are actually abortions. And I mean, it's just kind of like, wait a second. I mean, this is just like biology and this is just like, you know, has anyone walked through a pregnancy and been told when you miscarried that you had an abortion? I mean, no. Um, so here we go. These are just clear terminology. A miscarriage is an unintentional loss of a pregnancy before 20 weeks. Um, after 20 weeks, usually you're calling that fetal demise or, or stillborn um, that you would need to deliver then. An ectopic pregnancy, a pregnancy in which the baby is developing outside of the uterus, typically in the fallopian tomb. And this is an unviable pregnancy. So ectopic pregnancies, we don't have the medical technology right now in order to save a pregnancy that's ectopic, unfortunately. Hopefully we will get there. But we don't. So when we talk about ectopic pregnancies, that and, and women needing abortion care to handle ectopic pregnancies, abortion is the intentional taking of a viable, healthy pregnancy. Whereas an ectopic pregnancy is not a viable pregnancy. Elective abortion, which is the vast majority of abortions in this country, are chosen for personal reasons, not being ready to become a mom, and it's not for medical reasons. So a lot of times when people throw around the abortion term, you have to ask, what kind of abortion are we talking about? Because most of what women want the right to do is to have an elective abortion. I don't want to be pregnant right now. I understand that. That's frustrating that if, if you don't want to be pregnant. But most of the abortions that happen in this country are elective. There's medical abortions and there's surgical abortions. Medical abortions, abortion induced by taking medication rather than undergoing surgery. So there are different kinds of abortions. If you've ever had one or if you've walked to a friend who has one or you're a doctor, you might know this, but you can actually, there are chemical abortions and there are surgical abortions. Chemical abortions are where you take a series of pills and that eliminates what's what's developing in the uterus versus a surgical abortion where something is injected into the system, into your uterus, and then that, that life is then dismembered and taken out and cleaned out of the uterus, okay? So elective, medical, and surgical, these are all viable pregnancies, and these are the ways that you can have abortion on a viable pregnancy, but miscarriage and ectopic obviously are not viable. Okay. Okay, 
So thanks for walking us through all of those kind of, so we're all on the same page. Super fun terms. Well, yeah, I mean, it's hard. Like, so, so okay, we've talked about how we're like taking yeah. the political component out of it. We're, we're rooted in the Bible, science backs that up. Uh, we've all got the same terminology that we're talking about. Um, we had some people submitting questions and we kind of came up with some questions um, that, that are sort of a conglomerate, yeah, of all of, the, all of the questions that we got. Thank you for all of those that answered the survey. I know it was, it's hard. It's hard to take time to do that. Um, okay, so, so we, why are women having abortions, the vast majority not in hospitals, but in smaller abortion clinics that are not in consultation with a doctor? Yeah, so when, when people say that abortion is a decision that should be made with a, a woman and her doctor, the vast majority, the truth is the vast majority of abortions, elective or surgical, even the chemical, are done outside of a hospital and not in, consulta in consultation with a doctor. Miscarriage management or a DNC or fetal demise, uh, birthing a stillborn, those are all done in hospitals usually. And that's under the care of a physician, an OBGYN. Elective abortions, are the vast majority, I think it's over 95% of them, are done in, in smaller abortion clinics outside of hospitals. And when Roe v. Wade was overturned, there was this huge, you know, kind of like demand of where are we going to do this. And it was very expensive to do it in hospitals, and hospitals didn't want to violate their conscience over it. Most hospitals are faith-based. Um, Catholic, Lutheran, Methodist, you know, all these things, right? So they didn't want to do elective abortions. And so then became the abortion industry and the business of having abortions. So when you go into a Planned Parenthood, and you can go to the reasons slide if you want. Um, when you go into a Planned Parenthood, maybe some of you have been in there. I have been in there with friends. Um, they will perform an ultrasound. If you want an abortion, they will perform an ultrasound for you. But it is not to show you the ultrasound. It is not to let you hear the heartbeat. Those are things that they're actually trained not to show you and not to have you listen to. The purpose of walking in to get an ultrasound is to see how far along you are in your pregnancy so they know how much to charge you. Abortion is the only revenue maker that the government does not take funds out of for abortion clinics particularly Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood is actually not the only abortion provider in this country. They're one of many, but they're the, they, they do the largest amount of elective abortions in this country. They did over 800,000 abortions, or no, I'm sorry, that was the total of abortions last year. It was over 800,000 abortions last year. Planned Parenthood did nearly 400,000 of those. So there's smaller mom and pop shops, but you would walk in and you're having a consultation with a staffer, a Planned Parenthood staffer who's not a nurse, She's not a trained physician. Her job is to connect you to an appointment to an ultrasound tech who's then going to see how far along you are, and then they're going to tell you how much they can charge you. And that if you wait, then it's going to be extra. Like if we hit this next stage, if you hit the next trimester, it's going to be extra. So uh, you do hear language that says, like, it's laughable that women who are getting an abortion are consulting with their doctor. It's not laughable. Like, nothing about this is laughable. Like, this is, again, why I can't repeat a lot of the things that I think a lot of pro-life leaders say, is that some women are in consultation with their doctor because they have to do a DNC, which is not an abortion. It's for an unviable pregnancy, right, or for a miscarriage. That's an unviable pregnancy. The child has already passed. 
but the vast majority of abortions that are done in smaller clinics are not done with the consultation of a doctor. Um, they're done for the consultation of knowing how much to charge you. Um, oh, one more. Do the big chart, the big pie chart. Yeah, here we go. So if you look at, you know, 95% elective and unspecified reasons, 2.5% physical health, 1.3 fetal abnormality, and look, the rape and incest is 0.3%. So when you look at that, that's the reasons why that women have self-declared that they're showing up for an abortion. And I, I like this chart because um, it kind of shows us, I, I feel like a lot of times out of our compassion, we are wanting to fixate on on the 0.3%, on the 0.2%, and those are, I like when we, when Bri and I have talked about this in the past, she's like, those, that represents real people. And so, put that 0.3% is, are women. Those are numbers of women. So like, I don't want to ignore the 0.3%. I mean, that's, but I also can see that it's 0.3%. So when we're talking about legislation, so a lot of times it's so black and white it's like you are either for it or you're against it. So we're gonna legislate where there's just like no exceptions. And while I think that babies that are conceived in rape should not have to suffer the violence of abortion and that their mothers should not have to have another compound of trauma, because the abortion procedure, if you've ever Googled it, it's a very violent practice, it's a very violent procedure. That, that only, it doesn't take away the trauma of a rape, it doesn't take away the violence of a rape, it actually compounds and adds another action that is traumatizing to a, young, to a young woman or to a woman in general. But So I think that those stories are so real and valid, but I also think that it's okay to be incremental in our approach to say, all right, if this is the only thing that's going to pass here is that if we have exemptions, okay, let's, let's do that. But I also think that that people will claim, well, you're less pro-life because you believe that, or you're less pro-life because you have exceptions, or, you know, it's like, no, I, I just understand the big picture, and I'm willing to work across the aisle, and it's like, eventually we'll get there. Yeah, I really like that. So, so on that note, with, the, with abortion being a traumatic, violent act, I, I went to the Life Network event um, last week, and... I sat next to a woman who, for the last 25 years, she's a therapist here in town, and for the last 25 years, she has been spearheading the effort to do post this post-abortive Bible study, and, and they do retreats for these women, and it's so powerful what she told me. And basically their approach, I just wanted to share it with you, yeah. because I feel like, um, you know, if, it, if, if you are kind of, on the fence about this issue and you're not really sure how you feel about it, a lot of times it's coming out of a place of deep compassion and feeling like you are seeing those people in their pain. Um, but I think it's really cool that this pro-life group does this really neat Bible study and it's a whole series and then they end with a retreat. But they they do um, a retreat at, she said Glenary sometimes, but it seems like it's different places too. And it's a national thing, but the one in Colorado Springs meets they, does their, they do their end of the Bible study retreat at Glenary, and they have a chance to um, name their child if they want to, and um, they, they kind of do this little like project to, to kind of commemorate them. But also, 
she told me the the kind of heart behind the study, and I thought it was really sweet, and I wanted to share it with you. Basically, she was saying that the gospel lays out for us that the very hardest thing that can happen to a parent is losing a child, and God demonstrates that by sacrificing his son. And so when we don't acknowledge that loss, that women all around us, as we've known, um, I mean, as we looked at in the slide, in the church have experienced this loss of a child, if we're not acknowledging that and um, processing that, giving, giving space to process it, then it's, it's really leaving this giant hole for women to not have a place to put their grief. And um, if you are a Christian and you have experienced abortion and then, you know, come back to church, it's kind of, it's kind of like the, the attitude has been, okay, well, we accept you, we love you, we just don't want to talk about it, like never talk about it. And, and I mean, I would understand why people would be afraid to talk about it, but um, her approach as a therapist is saying the opposite. Like, we need to give a voice to that grief. And so I just thought it was really sweet. I wanted to share that with you. And she's been doing that since the late 90s, which I'm like, hey, like, why don't we have that on the news that, that we're doing that? I mean, I think that's really neat. Okay, so another survey question was, um, Oh, yeah, we need to do that one first. Okay, so, so in light of all of this, um, what, what do we need to do as, as the church, as a pro-life, the pro-life movement, what do they need to do moving forward in a post-row world? Like, how do we show up? Well, this is one thing I get kind of frustrated about with the pro-life movement, if I'm being perfectly honest, and that is, is that we have not been busy doing the things that would prevent and actually help uproot the root causes of why women have abortion. We know that that 90% number has to do with healthcare, has to do with finances, has to do with relationships, has to do with physical support, education, has all of these things to do. So like, I don't, I don't blame the overall movement for doing, advocating how they're advocating because I mean, look what just happened. They got legislation overturned, like which is just amazing, right? But the rest of us are kind of like, well, we don't have affordable health care or affordable housing or education scholarships. And, all. and I'm like, yep, 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 yep. Like, so when people are like, oh, just wait until you see the church now become the most, you know, adoption-minded movement. And I'm like, adoption is not the solution to abortion. It is not. I'm an adoptive mom, adoptive mom. Adoption does not uproot any of the reasons or deal with any of the root causes why well, abortion yeah. exists. Like as a foster mother, here's a very real scenario that, that where a woman would choose an abortion. She has two children, she's barely struggling to support them, and she's this close to losing them because she cannot keep a roof over their head and she finds out she's pregnant. If we are not showing up for her as the church, but we also don't want her to get an abortion, what's yeah. her option? And this is where sometimes I can get kind of controversial, and that is is that all of this is interconnected, right? All of these things that women need actually to support and sustain life are all so interconnected. It's why, it's why I'm a whole life, pro-life advocate. It's because when you have women who are 
as the society would say, forced to carry to term, right? If they're forced to carry to term and they are uniquely vulnerable and they can't provide for that child and they don't have support and they don't have housing and they're now they're gonna, they don't have daycare, they don't have paid family leave, all of these things, right? So then they have these children and these children become vulnerable. And a lot of times they get taken and they put, get placed in foster care. Well, there's across this country, there are 400,000 kids currently in foster care, cycling in and out every single year. 100,000 of them have no parental rights attached to them. So that means they're up for adoption. They need a forever family. How many churches do we have in America? 300,000. So one family per every third church could adopt a child and we could eradicate that line. So you have the whole world looking at us and saying, you just care about the baby until the baby is born and then you're done. You know what? There is some truth to that. There's also the truth that there are for every Planned Parenthood clinic, I believe there's eight pregnancy centers around it, it. For every, if you just do the stats of like abortion clinics versus pregnancy centers around the country. But it's also true that pregnancy centers can usually only support women up to year two. Well, anyone who's a mom knows that you got a lot of life left with that baby, and um, <laughs> they don't just come dropped off at age two. Age two. <laughs> yeah. So I mean. Again, this goes back to like just this compassionate and empathetic approach, all right? It's okay, so if you have 100,000 kids waiting and a pro-choice woman is saying, see, you don't actually care about the baby because the baby is languishing in foster care and you don't want, and that child, what we know from brain development and trauma teaching and all of the things that we know is that a child needs permanency and they need connection. And what does that come from? It comes from being in a stable consistent home. Well, most kids are bounced around from home to home. So you have 20,000 foster kids aging out of the system every year. And so where do they go? We know what the pipeline is for kids who age out of foster care. It's the prison system. It's homelessness. It's human trafficking. It's the mental health care world. Um, there was one other one. Did, did I say prison? Okay. Prison, homeless. Well, it's all terrible. Human trafficking. So those are the pipelines for the kids who, who age yeah. out. And so, I, okay. I do love a lot of the things that we're even doing at our church yeah. in this space. So um, a lot of people involved in Mary's Home, um, the Dream Centers. We're do yeah. um, I mean, what Matthew Ayers is doing with like... Yeah. Um, it's not that we're safe families. It's not that we're doing families. nothing. Yeah, and safe families is a great solution. It's just that now in a post-row world, we got to like... What, we got to amp up. up it. So if we had reasons before as to why it was just like, you had sex outside, of, sex outside of marriage, deal with it. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like, these are the consequences. Just deal with it. Like, I just don't think that's a Christ-like approach to a woman who is now finding herself very vulnerable and scared. And so if the church wants to be consistent, we have to start showing up in the places that we know the continuum of life keeps going, right? And so I think that it's pro-life to end up doing ministry in prisons. I think it's pro-life to care about preventable diseases and kids who don't have health care. I think it's a pro-life. If it has to deal with life and death, I think it's a pro-life issue because my faith compels me to believe that and because I know that it's all connected, right? So there, so again, this is my kind of like my, okay, pro-life movement. If we weren't getting it together before, here's maybe where we could concentrate. And this was a, a statement that I just signed on to this last week. Let's see, Janelle, do you have that? It's the 
Yeah, here's the future. So this was just kind of proposed to a big group of evangelical leaders this last week, something that I just signed on to, and that this is something that they want to galvanize support for so that women could be supported once they find themselves in an unintended pregnancy, right? So we need accessible and affordable health care for parents and children, including expanding Medicaid, funding for prenatal care, delivery, postpartum expenses, right? to reduce the financial barriers to welcoming a child, expanding the tax care credits, paid paternal leave, flexible work hours, affordable child care options, fully enforce existing prenatal child support laws while seeking effective new ways to demand that all men take responsibility for the children they father. So these are some of the things, and I think sometimes the all of us who are probably more conservative-minded would be like, well, that sounds like a really big expanse of the government. And what I would just say is, is what do we prioritize? I'm a conservative, I, and I'm conservative politically, I'm conservative theologically. But what I do know is that when these safe, the social safety nets exist for women, it's so much easier to choose life. And you will also see that life will flourish because of that. So sometimes, I mean, not every government program is going to be effective. It's just not. And some people are going to completely take advantage of it. Well, guess what? We do that with Jesus all the time. We take advantage of Jesus' grace all the time. And half the time, we're not even asking forgiveness for it. We just go about our daily lives. So if we care about life, we've got to care about the quality of life and how to, and how to support and sustain that life. Otherwise, I don't think we're really being a pro-life people. That's good. Okay, I have another question from the survey. Okay. Uh, some people were having concerns about the more restrictive laws creating more desperate and unsafe abortions. Mm -hmm. How should we think about this? That's a big one. Well, again, entering into this with just like empathy and trying to find actual stat like unbiased stats right that it's kind of difficult to do but I come from the belief that I don't believe that elective abortions are safe in general I don't care if you're in a clinic or if you're in the back alley of abortion which is really a myth we'll get here into it in just a second but um, an abortion in order for an abortion to be effective someone has to die a life is taken. So abortion actually isn't really safe. It's not a safe procedure for one person. So that's one thing I think about when I hear that. But the second thing I think about is, is that the statistics before Roe, so in 1972, um, there was some data gathered about abortions, legal and illegal, and there were 39 illegal Abortion. There were 39 deaths from illegal abortions in 1972. 1973 is when Roe v. Wade was passed. So there were 39 deaths from illegal abortions. How many deaths from legal abortions? 24. So you have 24 deaths from legal abortion, and then you had 39 deaths from illegal abortions. And actually, over 90% of those illegal abortions were done with trained physicians. They weren't done with hangers in a back alley somewhere. That, the Washington Post just put out this kind of um, report about 
it's the Washington Post, they're pretty progressive. You know, it's like they just put out dispelling the myth that it's not like women are taking hangers into their backyards and doing, it's 90% of them are just paying under the table somewhere with a physician. So um, I think that's, those are two things to think about. I also think the other thing that we have to think about is, you know, Hillary Clinton is pretty famous for saying safe, legal, and rare. It used to be like abortion should be safe, it should be legal, and it should be rare. Well, I don't believe that abortions are safe, but if you're talking about like medical procedures in general that the woman is safe, yes, I do. But I also think that most abortions that are done in this country in small clinics, the doctors that are doing these don't have admitting privileges to hospitals. So Planned Parenthood, because they're a clinic, they're outside of a hospital, they don't have the same medical standards that hospitals have regulations for. Why not? Why not? Why, and it's because, as we've seen over the last several months and years, is that when you take away and say, or if you hold that standard to that doctors have to have admitting privileges to their local hospitals, Planned Parenthood clinics close because they don't have enough physicians that work at local hospitals to be able to admit women if there's a problem with their abortion procedure. So that's why so many clinics were shutting down. It was like, okay, so your doctors aren't up to snuff. Why do you not care about that? That's health care for women. Like, I don't understand that. So then it goes back to, okay, is it safe? Do you have the same medical standards as hospitals? No, you don't. I don't understand that, and I don't know why. So then it was like, okay, it needs to be legal. Well, okay, we can talk about it being legal or illegal, and then it being rare. Well, since Roe v. Wade overturned, there's been over 60 million abortions. I don't know what is rare about 60 million babies. So now we're kind of seeing both sides swing to this like all or nothing or abortion all the way up to, up to birth and then after birth. Like if I didn't want it and the baby survived, like there's no, they're fighting against. So it's like we, we got to stay out of this grossness on both sides and we just have to enter in from a compassionate space of like, you know what? I don't think it should be legal. You want to know why? It's because laws actually shape culture. Laws actually do prevent more evil from happening. We legislate against people all the time. You can't murder someone. You can't streak in public. You can't urinate and be drunk and intoxicated. Like there's lots of things that you're not allowed to do with your body for the safety and civility and the morality of your community. So safe, legal, and rare is no longer out there anymore, but those are the things that um, make me think about, well, I'm not sure this is actually really accurate when we scare people like that. I love it. I love it when you go on a rant. And <laughs> Sorry. You're like, you're like um, Whipping Sarah. out all these facts. Um, she does it all the time. Okay, so how do we handle this more locally? Um, the, the term abortion tourism in Colorado yeah. is becoming a thing. Yeah, so the Rocky Mountain Planned Parenthood Clinic is up in Denver, Aurora area, and they perform, they're one of the highest performing abortion clinics in the country. And so, you know, like California and Colorado, they're all kind of advertising Colorado abortion tourism. You know, Amy Schumer just did this ad that's floating all over YouTube about you can come for the leaves and the trees and the mountains and also get all the services you need. And it's like, you know, sponsored by Planned Parenthood. So one of the things is I think that we can fight for higher medical standards in our own state, in our own community. There's nothing wrong with a doctor having admitting privileges to a hospital, that's actually a better standard of care for women. 
Uh, less women are going to suffer from infections or be transported to emergency rooms because of botched abortion. So we can, we can legislate, we can pay attention to having higher medical standards for women. That's what I, that's what I think about that. Because we can't be in those rooms, and you know our laws are what they are in Colorado. But what we can fight for is higher standards for our laws until we can actually move forward with a different kind of legislation around abortion rights in our state. Yeah, and Polis said he's not. Right. Yeah. Okay, so do we boycott businesses that pay for abortions? That seems really hard. Well, I once had a, um, a pastor tell me, I don't know if there's anything about boycotting in the Bible. Like, does Jesus tell you to, like, boycott people? He does talk about investing wisely in places and supporting, you know, like, with your money uh, places. So I think it's going to be very hard in the near future to really kind of, like, boycott every place that has a different opinion than you do. You know, it's like, that's going to be very hard. But I do think that we can be wise about where we invest. I mean, I remember, so I love Patagonia. I don't buy Patagonia anymore because Patagonia donates a significant amount of money to Planned Parenthood every year. So it's like, I do Marmont now, or I do something in North Face or something like that. I so, almost exclusively feed my children at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> what does that say about my faith? <laughs> You're pretty up there, Sarah. <laughs> I know, I have so many points. So, I mean, I think we can just be wise about where we invest. I mean, I don't think we need to be Nazis about it, but I do think that, I think it's important to pay attention, right? Um, but I also think that we need to be thinking about why is it that businesses and organizations are now all of a sudden very supportive of helping pay for the travel and the procedure of abortions for women that work for them. First of all, it's a huge privacy issue. I'm not sure they're gonna, how they're going to get around that. I'm sure that they will. But I mean, you just like, who wants to go to their HR director that they never see and be like, I need an abortion. Can you refund me for all? It's like it's cheaper than the paid parental leave. Is that yes? Right? So this is the thing: is if if we're going to be for women, why wouldn't we be for women who choose life? You want to know why? It's because it's way more expensive to offer parental leave. It's way more expensive to have good health care for our families that work for us. It's a thousand dollars for you to help buy a flight and for the abortion procedure. So. I feel like we have to keep helping people think through that, you know, for someone who's pro-choice, that might sound like a really great option. Like, oh, finally, people are seeing me and I'm going to be able to like, oh, and it's like, well, what about me? Like, I'm, I'm going to have a baby. So my choice is to choose life. Why do I not get the financial benefits of that pregnancy choice? So just helping not in a snarky way, not in an unkind way, but in a conversation about like, well, have you ever thought about what it feels like to keep your pregnancy and have to pay for all the things that keeping a pregnancy entails? Man, I'd love it if my employer would back me in that decision because that was my choice, you know? So walking away from this discussion, we're going to have time to answer just a couple of questions um, after this, but... I just want to help all of us. I mean, I, I think that we're on a spectrum in what we're feeling yeah. about this as a group. Um, but walking away from this, like, what do you think are good ways for us as Christians to show up? I know that I would love to be able to 
have an intelligent discussion with someone. I mean, I've, I've learned a lot from you, and I feel like we, we all have gotten some education on this, but, but having intelligent discussions, and then, like, what? Like, how can we show up well? I think most, a lot of our conversations happen online these days, and so that's very, like, ugh, because a lot of trolling, a lot of, like, you know, you just can't communicate emotion through text. It's just very difficult. So I think it depends on where you're showing up. But I do think that your first, your first posture is of listening. You, it is not, I don't think that it's our job to prove a point. I think there are, there's a lot of pain associated with abortion. There's a lot of pain associated with choice. And so showing up in a way where, like, let's say you see a conversation happening and it's really, you know, heightened and chaotic. I mean, one of the best things you could do is be like, you know, I was thinking about this. I wonder what people think. And of course, you're probably going to get some kind of garbage back, like just not garbage in content, but just like someone's just really fired up about it and right back. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's something that I would be totally concerned about too. You're not, you're not, you're not being like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's true. Like, this is hard, and this is icky, and it's messy. That does not mean you can't wade into it. And it's personal. It's very personal. It does not mean you have to be an expert either. Showing up just with, like, compassion, like, hey, I'm pro-life, but I, I hear you. That is really difficult. And, you know, if you want me to pray for you, I can. I, and then you always just kind of circle back, like, you ask, asking a lot of questions will lead a conversation in a really gracious way, usually. Why do, why do you think that? And you start to learn someone's story long before you tell them how you feel about things. You know? So it's like maybe you never get to how you feel, but you, how you showed up was just so different, and the conversation you had was just so different. I mean, right now my role, I have a job where I advocate for immigrants and refugees, and I have a ton of, like, really hard messages that come into my DMs all the time, just like right at me. It's like someone's jumping off the page right at me. And like, I'm like, I'm not offended by that. I'm like, oh, yeah, you know what? Like immigrants taking jobs, that, that'd be really hard if my husband couldn't find a job. You know, I'd, has your husband lost a job? You know, or it's like, okay. And then you just start asking questions, right? It's like being curious about why they're in the place that they're in emotionally, physically, circumstantially. Like, why are they in that place? Why are they coming at you like that? Because it's not about you. Like, all these DMs I get, all the things, the conversations you get, it's not really about you. It's about something that's agitating them. So I think showing up and listening well and being curious before you, wanna, before you punch a line, I think is really helpful in knowing where to go from there. And it's always okay to say, you know, I haven't thought about that. I don't know. I'm going to look that up. I'll get back to you. It's totally fine to put a pin in it because then it means another conversation, right? And then you're building relational equity with somebody and then you're coming back. So it's not just this like splash in the bucket. Yeah. And I think, I think that um, one of the biggest things I'm taking away from your talk is that it is worth having an opinion on and speaking 100%. up about yes. it, there are as, lives that are at stake full yes. of grace and compassion as we are and as we know that God is and we can draw on his grace and compassion it is worthy of having 
an opinion. And I think that our generation um, really struggles with, we just don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And we know that it's a loaded topic, but it is worth engaging about. And so, but we want to do it well. And we want to make sure that when we say that we care about life, that we're caring obviously about the mother's life too. I mean, part of being curious in this space is also understanding why some women feel like this is the most, the only thing that is, you know, that they need to cling to. Like what, you know, when we're, we don't have a whole lot of minorities here in the Springs, but minority women have higher morbidity rates when it comes to maternal morbidity rates are super high. So you get pregnant, I mean, life or death sometimes in some communities. You don't have the health care you need to carry that to term. Your aunt had preeclampsia and never got treated. You're some, some, it's like, wow, like I can see why this looks like a life or death issue for mom, the health of the mother, right? But I do think, and this is one thing I didn't mention when we were talking about higher standards of medical care, is that if you talk to pro-life doctors, I'm just going to circle back around, take the slow rabbit trail, and then I'll come back. It's like when you talk to pro-life doctors, when you have a pregnant woman that comes into their office, they're dealing with two patients, not one. So if, if there's something going on and that baby needs to be delivered early, that pro-life doctor will say, I don't have to end the life of this child to try and save the mother. I would perform an early delivery on the child, and I would work to try and save both. That child might not live from that delivery because they might not be old enough in their development. But I'm going to talk about two patients, not one. So when we talk about these conversations with women, it's like, your life matters. And a lot of times that's what, they're like, that's what the argument is, is my life matters. And you're saying that this baby matters more than me. No, I'm not saying that. You are a unique image bearer and your life matters. But so does the life in your womb that has a separate body than yours. And there are ways to think about this that allow you to enter into those spaces of difference without anger and to be curious to say, why does she think this is life and death for her or her community? Because it's probably very different than yours and your own experience. And I think that's so important to remember. Thanks, Bree. I could do one more hour up here, but we only have a few more minutes. Um, can um, if anybody has a question, I'm going to walk around with the mic. Anybody have a question for Bree? Do you want her to come with you to your talk with your friend? I'll just buy the coffee. <clears throat> Hi. Um, this just kind of goes back to that 5% um, of abortions that end up happening for various other reasons other that are you know more defined. Yeah. Um, and in wanting to have a heart for that person that says to you, um, hey, I just experienced a rape, or hey, there's a serious health condition, or whatever it might be, um, I've just never heard of an organization, and I'm asking you because you know all about this, that would even care for someone that I could say, hey, you know what, this place will actually care for you for the next nine months and love on you and walk you through that process because if that person is faced with, one, already the trauma of said experience, um, how do you care for them? Like, I would love to be in a place where I could care for someone to give them another option, but if there is no place, you know, I come from having family that, you know, 
I had an aunt that when she was really young was in a very conservative Catholic family. She got pregnant and she was sent away to a place. Nowhere to go. And mm. then you had your baby and you went back and you yeah. acted like nothing happened. Wouldn't it be great if the church was the first place that pregnant women went? Wouldn't that be great? There is an amazing, amazing group that was founded by one of my best friends. Her name is Amy Ford. It's called Embrace Grace. Embrace Grace. There are several embrace groups here in town, and uh, there's actually one here at New Life Church, um, and there's some at other churches. But Embrace Grace is a ministry for women who are experiencing unexpected pregnancies, and their whole entire ministry is to welcome women with unintended pregnancies and walk them through their nine months of pregnancy. Churches host a baby shower for them, provide them all that they need, get them connected to the local pregnancy center, get them, go with them to medical appointments. A lot of times you have, you know, you find out something's wrong and that's not typical in the pregnancy. And so how do you walk through, how do you walk through that? Well, you've got a group of women who are coming alongside of you and doing life with you and supporting you in that way. Um, if there's not an Embrace Grace group in your area, there is one here. Um, you can usually at a children's hospital, there's a chaplain that can connect you to people who actually walk through hard things with women who are in those pregnancy situations. But I would say if you're looking about mentorship, if you're looking about inviting somebody in, I think that that's Embrace Grace is a really good one. I mean, I also think the reality is, is that when we talk about what women need to actually survive and carry... A, a pregnancy to term and then survive, especially if they're vulnerable and they're single, is we need affordable housing. This city has zero affordable housing. Mary's Home has, I work at Mary's Home, I've worked there since it's open for six years. We can house at most 16 mothers. That's it. And they have dozens of applications of women wanting to come in. So it's like, okay, what does it look like to actually get involved in the weeds of affordable health care in our city? Does that just mean me advocating? Does that mean, like, I got to Google around. A lot of people are like, I have nowhere to start on that. I just use Google. Google is my best friend. I'm like, okay, what, how do I get involved in this? What do I do? But I would say Embrace Grace is probably the best thing. Super great. All right. I think we're all processing. That's okay. Um, we have a few minutes to just discuss and... Um, Bree, thank you so much. I am so glad. I know this was a hard week and a hard topic, but I'm proud of us for just not being afraid to talk about this hard stuff because it's real and, and the Bible has a lot to say about it, and I know it's on our minds and our hearts. So thank you so much, Bree. Um, all right, we can just have discussion until um, we have to pick up our kids and also we have all these all these toys over here i believe that sherry sherry did say that if you wanted to actually purchase anything she would figure it out with you she'll just she'll call you later to for your credit card information <laughs> really so so please um go ahead and peruse you might not want to let your kids back in here <laughs> after you pick them up if you don't want to buy them all right thank you so much ladies we will see you Next time for Sarah Jackson speaking, the other Sarah Jackson. I'm the other Sarah Jackson, let's be honest. So, um, and she is gonna, um, she's gonna talk about um, this really interesting concept of differentiation within marriage. So I'm really excited to hear from her. All right, love you girls.